Hello, Culture Gabfest listeners. This is Sam Adams, the editor of Slate's culture blog, Browbeat. And I wanted to introduce the inaugural episode of a new podcast series I'm hosting that is exclusive for Slate Plus members. It's called the Conspiracy Thrillers Movie Club, and it's a look at how conspiracy thrillers like All the President's Men, The Parallax, View, and Get Out represent paranoia and anxiety on the big screen. In each episode, I'll chat with other cultural critics to review the movies and talk about how they reflected our worst political and social fears of the time. You can join the Conspiracy Thrillers Movie Club yourself by becoming a Slate Plus member. You'll be able to join in on the conversation in a Facebook group and listen to all the upcoming episodes. Find out more at slate.com slash thrillers. But for now, join me for the first episode on The Manchurian Candidate with my guest, Mark Harris. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Sam Adams, the editor of Slate's Browbeat Culture Blog and your host for the Conspiracy Thrillers Movie Club. Every two weeks, I'm going to be talking with other culture critics about some of the best conspiracy thrillers of the past few decades. It's a great way to explore how movies can look beyond the surface of our world to show us, or at least pretend to show us, what's really going on and whether our most paranoid fears are actually the truth. We have lots of great movies coming up, including All the President's Men and The Parallax View. You can get all the details at slate.com thrillers. Now that that's out of the way, let's get into our very first episode on The Manchurian Candidate. When it was released in 1962, some critics faulted The Manchurian Candidate for its lack of plausibility. The story of a brainwashed American soldier who becomes an unwitting communist assassin was, wrote the New York Times' Bosley Crowther, so fantastic that one is suspicious of the author's sincerity. The movie was a box office hit, but the Kennedy assassination dampened the public's appetite for entertainment premised on political murder, and a dispute between star Frank Sinatra and United Artists over the film Profits led to it being absent from theaters for much of the 1970s and 80s. The film was re-released for its 25th anniversary in 1987, and since then it's become part of the conspiracy thriller canon, and its title has entered the lexicon as an all-purpose term for almost any politician with a hidden agenda. There are hundreds of thousands of references to Barack Obama as a Manchurian candidate, and after only a few months in office, Donald Trump is already closing in on his record. Where did this cornerstone of the conspiracy thriller come from, and why does it still resonate so deeply more than half a century later? Joining me to talk about The Manchurian Candidate and all things conspiratorial is Mark Harris. Mark is the author of the essential Hollywood histories, Pictures at a Revolution and Five Came Back, as well as a forthcoming biography of director Mike Nichols. He also wrote the screenplay for the Netflix documentary series based on Five Came Back and writes regularly for Vulture about the movie business. He's also written for Grantland and Entertainment Weekly, and his Twitter feed is an oasis of sanity in insane times. He is also the kindest, bravest, warmest, most wonderful human <laughs> being I've ever known in my life. And I'm very pleased to welcome him to our little conspiracy thrillers club. Um, so let, let me start just by asking you kind of about your history with the Manchurian candidate. As I mentioned, it was kind of out of circulation for you know, really the better part of several decades. And then it's been back in for about 30 years. And it's a movie that whose meaning kind of changes over time. It was remade in 2004 by Jonathan Demme as well. 
Um, so I'm wondering just kind of what your experience has been about it then and now. Well, my experience was that as I was a teenager and getting really interested in movies, the Manchurian Candidate was this thing that you couldn't see. Um, as you said, it had been pulled from circulation. The story that I, I had always heard was that uh, Sinatra was so upset by the Kennedy assassination that he didn't want this movie in uh, the public eye. I have no idea how true that was or not, but it lent a kind of darkness, a kind of feeling of, oh my God, how bad and grim can this movie really be if American audiences can't even see it? So when it finally came back in theaters, it was a very big deal. I mean, it played nationally and it played for quite some time and we, we were all super excited to go. And once I saw it for the first time, when I guess I was in my uh, mid-20s, I kind of understood what all the the fuss was about. I mean, it was a really surprisingly dark, pessimistic, uh, cynical, upsetting uh, movie. And what I don't remember in the 80s is if everybody was suddenly saying, oh, and it's so resonant. I, I think its resonance has probably waxed and waned over the years. And, and I, I just rewatched the movie uh, before this podcast. And, and it's definitely at one of its high resonance, high relevance moments. Yeah, it's interesting that it has kind of drifted in and out of the popular consciousness at times where it seems to be either perfectly in sync or, or very much out of sync. I mean, when it first came out in 1962, that was kind of really when the, the Cold War was really at its hottest and right around the time of the, of the Cuban Missile Crisis. The assassination aspect of the novel, the, the Richard Cotton novel, which it was based on, and then the film itself was considered very sort of politically inflammatory at the time that the story then is that Sinatra, who was friends with JFK, kind of had to get his blessing in order to, for United Artists to go ahead with the movie. And in fact, it turned out that Kennedy was a big fan of the novel. Right. Then, as I mentioned, I think the Kennedy assassination kind of put a, a damper on the way people felt about the film. As far as I can tell, the story about that being the reason it was withdrawn circulation is at least unconfirmed. And it seems to be more a matter of there was sort of a dispute between Sinatra and UA about who was going to get the money from the film. And Sinatra kind of got the rights back in 72, but wasn't actually getting the money from it and then mm. figured if he wouldn't, he wasn't going to get it, then no one was. But I really hesitate to debunk any conspiracy theories around this particular <laughs> movie because that's just not in the spirit of the film itself. And then, you know, as, as you mentioned, it kind of came back in the late 80s as really near, near the end of the Cold War and the Soviet Union. And then it's sort of come back around in the last several years. A lot of places on the right wing would refer to Obama as a Manchurian candidate. Right. Sometimes without a, a real degree of specificity, it just became this kind of generic term for any politician who was up to something suspect. Yeah. And then now we find it very much back in the popular consciousness again. Uh, Criterion put it out on Blu-ray last year. So that kind of put it back into the... And the as you said, it was it was also uh, in the middle of the George W. Bush presidency, Jonathan Demme brought it back into uh, popular consciousness. So in I think that movie came out in 2004, uh, right halfway through his eight-year term. And I mean, one interesting thing to me is the movie obviously posits this paranoia-built worst-case scenario, which is that we would literally have someone a heartbeat away from the presidency, if not in it, who was robotically programmed by the enemy. But the movie, I think, is smarter than that because it also suggests – the remake suggests it and the original suggests it too – that. This is made possible in a way by glad-handing populist idiot politicians who are as great a danger to 
democracy as as someone who's literally programmed to kill. Right. So that certainly packs a punch. You know, depending on what's going on in the world at the moment you watch it, one danger might resonate more or less than the other. Yeah, I should should mention, I guess, just for uh, purposes of having said it, that um, this is a 55-year-old movie, so I think we're going to be unduly concerned with with spoilers here. (laughs) Um, We may not be tremendously cavalier with them, but... um, you know, I also don't want to spend you know too much of our time kind of recounting the plot, but just to go, just to go into into the very basics and expand a little bit on what I said in the in the intro. The the story of the film is that this American soldier played by Lawrence Harvey, his he and his uh, platoon are, are captured in Korea in 1952. They are all brainwashed. Two of the men are are killed by Lawrence Harvey himself. And then he is returned to the U.S. as as a war hero with this story that's been implanted all of their minds of this kind of victorious operation that that he led. And if you start try to add everything up, it does not all really fit together. But he is a kind of programmed to be an assassin for this sort of communist alliance between Russia and China. And this is all part of a giant plan to get his stepfather, who's this kind of Joe McCarthy figure into the White House through making him the vice presidential nominee and then staging an assassination, which which pushes him forward. And it's all very elaborate and makes less sense the more you look at it. But I think part of what makes the movie work is that the closer you look at it, the less sense it makes. So it becomes this very kind of intoxicating and yet confusing object where it kind of compels your attention and then frustrates it at the same time. Right. I mean, the I think the remake, which I rewatched recently and I think as is often the case with remakes, looks a lot better now, 12 or 13 years later, than it did the moment it came out, when you could really only perceive it in the shadow of the original. The remake actually solves a couple of the plot things, but the 1962 version, which is obviously the the sort of famous and beloved one, it plays on a couple of things that really seem to me to grow out of the 50s. Like, one of them is this fear of the evil mother. I mean, one of the the chief villains in The Manchurian Candidate is this candidate's mother, played by Angela Lansbury, and, and the performance that is probably the best-remembered performance of the, of the original movie. And she seemed to grow out of a whole kind of monster mother fascination that you can see in, like, Tennessee Williams movies of the 50s, and, and you know, the, the, this kind of... When the movies start playing with Freud and and get really interested in this idea that this domineering mother could destroy her son, the the Manchurian Candidate is very much of its moment in that particular plot twist, I think. Yeah, and the the sexuality of the movie is very strange and and very interesting. My understanding is I actually haven't read the the Richard Condon novel that it's based on. My understanding is that there is a sort of a literal incest plot in the novel, which then the movie, it being 1962, kind of pulls back on some, but right. it's very much the su- it's barely subtext in in the film. It's very clear. It's enhanced not a little bit by the fact that Angela Lansbury was only three years older than Lawrence Harvey when they shot the film, despite the right. fact that she's playing his mother. And the way the Lawrence Harvey character's sexuality is dealt within the film is itself very interesting. There's a, a comment in the very first scene where he kind of all the men in his unit are enjoying their time in this Korean brothel and he comes in and, and busts it up and someone makes a comment about him having a girl back home. And then one of the soldiers says, oh, you know, like that's just the most unbelievable thing to him. So there is this kind of weird 
just generally repressed sexuality associated with him. Yeah. Is, and and I think one of the things that makes that really effective and makes him really effective in the movie is the Manchurian Candidate, we should say, it basically has four main characters. I mean, it's Lawrence Harvey and, and his mother, Angela Lansbury, and Frank Sinatra, who is sort of the, the good guy who's who's trying to solve this, and then Janet Lee, who is, for lack of a better description, like the girl. I mean, that was that was her function. And what struck me in watching it again was, you know, Angela Lansbury is obviously Angela Lansbury, and she's great. Frank Sinatra has never been my favorite actor, but, you know, he was a gigantically familiar screen presence by then. Janet Lee was only two years post-Psycho. But Lawrence Harvey is this actor who we really don't have a lot of associations with aside from this movie. I mean, maybe some people have seen Room at the Top, which is the movie that sort of made him famous a couple of years earlier. but. But in the canon, you know, 55 years later, Lawrence Harvey is the Manchurian candidate. That's pretty much all we have of him to hold on to. And so, and he's a weird actor. He's kind of very delicately featured. He's super British, which makes zero sense in this plot, but you just kind of go with it. He's cold. He's not an ingratiating or warm actor. And so you don't bring anything from any other movie to watching him as this guy. And so he's very believable in it. Right. And it's an interesting thing because if, you know, you, you listen to a read, Frank and I were talking about the movie. He was very aware of kind of casting Lawrence Harvey against type at the time. He was someone who I think on screen and certainly in person was just very kind of likable and ingratiating and casting him as one of the kind of main conceits uh, of the movie is that, his his character originally is, is incredibly unlikable, is incredibly kind of unpopular in his unit. He's just this total stick in the mud. He is a, a sniper, kind of a, a crack shot, which is important to him being this, you know, programmed assassin, but it is also goes a little bit to his character, you know, in that he's someone who kind of, you know, snipers work alone. You know, they don't necessarily, their job is not to play well with others. And he he certainly does not. But once all the men have been brainwashed, he becomes, you know, this, this favorite person of the unit and, and Frank Sinatra and everyone else will talk about him as if he was their greatest friend. Well, at the same time, knowing that something about that is not quite right. So the way that Harvey is incredibly kind of chilly and kind of priggish and, and dislikable in the movie really I think it was, it was something kind of Frankenheimer deliberately did to kind of throw audiences for a loop and maybe just another way in which the film kind of disorients people right and I think that still is really effective I mean I, I was trying to you know the first 20 or 25 minutes of the movie are really as you said disorienting and disturbing there's this long great showpiece of a sequence where you see the the members of the platoon uh, being held prisoner but they're under hypnosis so you're seeing the scene alternately as they are being played with by their korean captors and they're being played with by the members of a suburban new jersey garden party which is the scene that they've been hypnotized into believing is actually taking place and so as you move in and out of that scene and start to meet some of these guys in the present day, Frankenheimer sets up really beautifully that everybody is living in a reality that seems off to them, that they're slightly, they have bad dreams or they 
They like this guy, as you said, but they don't know why they like this guy, because he's not likable. It's a really great sense of disorientation that everything seems outwardly normal, except there are nightmares and inconsistencies and oddnesses, and they don't know what's wrong, and you don't know what's wrong. Yeah, I'd love to talk about the the garden party sequence that you mentioned in, in greater detail, because it's this really incredible sequence in, in conception and execution. Frankenheimer had, had come out of basically doing kind of live TV filmed theater um, for much of the 50s and then moved into movies in, in 61. I believe The Manchurian Candidate was the third movie he released in 1962. It was a very, right. very kind of got off to a running start. But you can see him using some of those skills in this sequence, which starts off with this 360 degree pan around the room, which as you mentioned, kind of starts out as what's meant to be this kind of ladies meeting of a ladies garden club at which the, this platoon has been mysteriously stranded in New Jersey. And the camera kind of pans around the room as the matron of this garden club is giving this lecture on, I believe it's rhododendrons. It might be azaleas. Um, Excuse my imprecision there. And her voice continues, but as the camera is turning around, there are people frantically moving pieces of the sets and replacing it. And by the time the camera has completed this spin, we're seeing this Korean official who's explaining how these characters have been brainwashed. And it's this incredible thing where there's no cut in the camera. And the reality is kind of completely transformed just by the time it's spun around. And it really kind of cements this paranoid ideal of the world not being what it seems. More complications. The cultivation of hydrangeas was evolved from a number of varieties originally found in Japan. Not all of which, of course, have the same characteristics. Two of them do not share the quality of producing blue flowers in mineral-rich soils. Allow me to introduce our American visitors. I must ask you to forgive their somewhat lackadaisical manners, but I have conditioned them or brainwashed them, which I understand is the new American word, to believe that they are waiting out a storm in the lobby of a small hotel in New Jersey where a meeting of the Ladies' Garden Club is in progress. You will notice that I have told them they may smoke. (laughs) I've allowed my people to have a little fun in the selection of bizarre tobacco substitutes. (laughs) Are you enjoying your cigarette, Ed? Yes, ma'am. And it's also just beautiful Frankenheimer technique because the brainwashed or hypnotized soldiers are are being treated as theater by their captors. I mean, this is a big joke to them. It's like a demonstration for an assembled audience of captors saying, look at what we can make them do to each other, up to and including kill each other. So so it's almost like you're watching a play, but you're watching a play presented on camera with techniques that could never be pulled off on stage, that only film could do what this particular sequence does in terms of destabilizing you and, and, and disorienting you and making you unsure of what you're watching. Right. I mean, one of the things that I think makes conspiracy thrillers in general so interesting, and this is something I think we're going to be kind of talking about in in a lot of the other episodes in the series, is there are these incredible social x-rays that really become a locus of everything that's going through the culture. At the same time, there's a kind of built-in insanity to the genre that allows them to 
just pull from every direction and put things together that really don't belong together. So one of the things that finds its way into this film is this popularization of Freudian psychology that works its way in in, in various ways. So, for example, uh, we get a, a second, much briefer glimpse at the garden party scene later on, which the various men in the unit are kind of recalling in these PTSD dreams uh, that they can't even quite remember when they wake up, but it's uh, it's sort of gradually coming back to them. And in one of those cases, that the person having the dream is the black soldier from the unit. And in his dream, all the women in the, in the garden party are black. So it it's not kind of a fixed fantasy that they're all living right. at. It, their mind has been kind of trained to to customize it for themselves. It's also really prescient if you consider that this is all pre-Vietnam and pre the popularization of the idea of PTSD. I mean, that wasn't really in the public vocabulary then, but this movie is, you know, which was shot in what, 1961, is about uh, American soldiers who go to Southeast Asia and are so traumatized by something that happens there that there's really no recovering. So it's interesting to me that the movie was largely out of circulation throughout the Vietnam years and for a long time afterward. Because, like, it's a 60s movie in as many ways as it's a 50s movie. And it works if you see it in the context of 67 or 68 or 1972. Like, there's a lot there. Right. One of the other things that's very interesting, very kind of forward-looking about the film is the role that, that TV plays in it. As I mentioned, Frank and I had come out of live television. Uh, but this movie is coming out in the beginning of the, or I guess in the, in the middle of the, of the Kennedy administration, which is really the, the first presidency that was defined by TV. And, and it's coming up alongside, although it doesn't really share anything in common with it, but it's coming up alongside the beginning of the American direct cinema movement. Um, Robert Drew documentaries like Primary and Crisis, which took people inside first Kennedy's campaign and then his inside the White House during the, the civil rights crisis in um, 63. And in ways that people had just never been able to get that kind of an up-close glimpse of a presidency before. And there's actually very little kind of literal TV in the Manchurian Canada. I think there's only one scene in which you actually sort of see a television or it plays a significant role, but it really resonates throughout the whole film. Senator Johnny Island, who is the, the Joe McCarthy figure in the movie, interrupts some kind of mundane press conference that a government secretary is giving. And from the back of the room, he shouts out this McCarthy-esque claim that he has a list of, I think at that point, it's 204 known communists in the government. And one of the running jokes in the movie, and it's sometimes referred to as a satire, which I don't think is quite accurate, but there is definitely a vein of like pretty wicked humor running through it. So one of the running jokes of the movie is that like Joe McCarthy, every time Johnny Island says how many communists there are in the government, the number changes, uh, which which is something that McCarthy actually did, but was not actually, <laughs> was not particularly funny when he did it. We want to go on with this nonsense. Yes, sir. If there are no further questions for the secretary, I think that'll about wrap things up. Mr. Secretary, I have a question, sir. Who are you, sir? I am United States Senator John Yerkes Island, and I have a question so serious that the safety of our nation may well depend on your answer. Who? No evasions, Mr. Secretary, no evasions, if you please, sir. Evasions? What the hell are you talking about? What kind of foolishness is this? Mr. Secretary, I'm kind of new at this job, but I don't think it's good public relations to talk about waiting United States Senator, even if he is an idiot. I am United States Senator John Yerkes Island. 
And I have here a list of the names of 207 persons who are known by the Secretary of Defense as being members of the Communist Party. What? Who are still, nevertheless, if you working in and shaping the policy of the Defense Department. Senator Ho. I demand an answer, Mr. Secretary. There will be no covering up, sir. What? No covering up. You are not going to get your hands on How did you get in here in the first place? But the way Frankenheimer stages that scene is that it's one of those split diopter shots where you have on the left side of the screen, a, a TV set with a, actually a live video feed going to it. It's in pristine focus. And then the right hand side, you have this secretary who's kind of vainly trying to shout down this grandstanding senator in the back of the room. And he is out of focus. So you're watching TV of something that's going on at the same time. And it gives you the sense the movie doesn't need to make it explicit, I think, especially to viewers in 1962 who had just lived through the McCarthy era. But it gives you the sense that the John Islin is somebody who really knows how to harness the power of television. He's somebody who knows how to grab the spotlight, make this very brief incendiary statement, and then kind of run out of the spotlight before anybody has a chance to ask him a follow-up question. Right. I mean, the McCarthy years were really the first moment when a lot of people realized the power and the danger of television in the hands of a demagogue. And The Manchurian Candidate is one of the first movies, I guess the the earlier one I can think of is A Face in the Crowd, but it's one of the first movies to take on television not in this blunt force way, because as you say, it's there's not that much television in the movie, but it definitely understands that these demagogues know how to use television to sell themselves and, and their ideas and to instill fear into a viewing public. I mean, that's early. You know, it's 15 years before network. We don't see a lot of early 60s TV paranoia. Most of the Hollywood movies that dealt with TV in the early part of the 60s were comedies that played with advertising. It's like the job that Rock Hudson would have in a Doris Day movie, you know, like being an ad sales guy or making TV commercials was sort of a fun thing that movies like to take on. But a more serious look at what the medium of television could do is pretty rare for the moment when the Manchurian candidate opened. Right. And if, and if you think about the, the climax of the movie, and this, this is the part where we spoil it, I guess, but the, the whole, <laughs> what do we eventually find out? The plan is to create this, you know, real assassination, but in a very deliberate staged way for kind of maximum visual impact. And the idea is that, you know, Johnny Eisen will kind of arise covered in blood and take the microphone and give this amazing speech that, has been worked on in China and the Soviet Union for 12 years or whatever it is on and off. And, and it's really about creating this Daniel Borston pseudo event or something like that. It, it's really, I guess you could almost sort of think of it as a kind of act of, of proto-terrorism or something like that. It's really, it's not just about killing a presidential candidate. It's about really staging something for the cameras and exploiting that to kind of sweep this communist puppet into the White House. Yeah, it's it's very dark. It's a very stern ending to this movie and underscored by... Uh, the, the movie has this interesting score, this kind of like depressed Aaron Copeland style music that kind of is telling you like... This isn't fun, and it's very American, and you're not going to have a great time. Like, this is, this is a hard story we're going to tell you. And the ending certainly underlines that argument. Right. I and mean, one of the things I, I, I want to talk to you about, and I, I don't have a more sophisticated way to put this, but is just how weird this movie is. Because it, it is 
in a way that I think is very interesting, but it is a film that really much feels at war with itself in a lot of ways. And maybe some of this is just it coming through the Hollywood system and being like, okay, you were making a movie about the assassination of a presidential candidate and like, you know, communist brainwashing. Um, could we maybe have like a karate fight in it or something? <laughs> um, so there's this, as you mentioned, this very weird, almost entirely extraneous love subplot between Frank Sinatra and, and Janet Lee. Which leads to, I th- I think it's fair to say, kind of one of the strangest flirtation scenes in the history of of <laughs> motion pictures. Uh, I was relieved too. I was um, spending some time with the Criterion um, release, and I was relieved to see both in Frankenheimer's commentary and in there's an interview with with Errol Morris on the disc as well. And both of them dwell on the extreme oddness of the scene where Janet Lee and and Frank Sinatra first meet on a train. Maryland's a beautiful state. This is Delaware. I know. I was one of the original Chinese workmen who laid the track on this stretch. But um, nonetheless, Maryland is a beautiful state. So is Ohio, for that matter. I guess so. Columbus is a tremendous football town. You in the railroad business? Not anymore. However, if you will permit me to point out, when you ask that question, you really should say, are you in the railroad line? So this is a scene. One of the reasons I asked about your your history with the film to begin with is in my own history of the film, one of the things that's happened is I've seen it, I don't know, probably five or six times by now, but certainly the first three or four times that I saw it, which were probably separated by by several years, every time I get to that scene, I forget that Janet Lee isn't a spy. I always think that there's some weird sort of code word thing going on and there's going to be a reveal later on and then you realize that this is just the strangest flirtation that anyone has ever cooked up it's apparently taken directly from condon's novel but that doesn't make it any less strange in the film and certainly the way sinatra and lee play it is is with this weird kind of almost almost anti-chemistry it's the way they deliver it's very flat yeah i really love what janet lee does in this movie because she's such an interestingly like she it, it's sort of deadpan and so you're right to think oh what's her game she must be up to something because she's so not ingratiating she could be a warm actress but she doesn't deploy that in this movie and e- even as the movie tries to keep one foot planted in traditional movies of that period, which means having a girl for Sinatra, having a romantic subplot. She plays it as oddly and as off kilter as anyone else in the movie. I mean, the most conventional performance in the movie is not hers. It's probably Sinatra's, right? Yeah. I mean, they give him these weird eccentricities where he is this, you know, career military man who also is a, a profound interest in the Oristaya and there's some very strange monologues about the, the books he has in, in his house and, and things like that. But, but Which yeah, but he, it, he but, doesn't seem to believe them. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, it, it's very much like he just kind of, you know, showed up and, and read his lines on this day. I mean, I think his is in a movie that's really full of very eccentric performances. I think his is maybe perhaps as the lead should be kind of the, the, the most sort of bedrock straight ahead Right. Since his role is to walk into the madness of this world that Richard Condon and Frankenheimer have set up, it's appropriate that he 
give a pretty straight up sincere performance. Whereas everyone else, I mean, Angela Lansbury takes this monster mother and really goes for it. And like, and it goes much farther than you might imagine a character in a movie from this period would go. You know, she takes it to really interesting places. Lawrence Harvey, we talked about it's, as you said, against type for him, but he certainly commits to it. And yeah, and, and it's interesting to compare Sinatra just thinking ahead to some of the other movies we're going to talk about, like The Parallax View, where those movies are really premised on the idea that the, the leading character, who's almost always a man, is kind of doubting his own sanity, that he's kind of un- uncovering this incredible conspiracy and no one believes him. And then he starts to think at some point, maybe he's the one who's crazy. And that's not really a dynamic that's at play in this movie. I mean, Sinatra has trouble remembering what happened to him because he's been through this brainwashing process. But, you know, one of the, the consequences of having the guarding party scene early in the film, and I think it's in, you know, the first, maybe the first 10 minutes, certainly the first 15, is that we know right from the beginning what happened. There are things that are, are left to later in the film, like the revelation of who Raymond's American operative is. Right. But there's no doubt that they've been brainwashed and they've been, you know, taken into this kind of giant communist plot. We shouldn't underestimate the degree to which it was subversive for a movie from this period to say, you can't trust veterans. I mean, like, that. this is only 15 or 16 years after the end of World War II, and obviously much more recently than that, after the end of Korea. And so, to imagine that decorated soldiers or potential sleeper agents really is dark for the Camelot era, you know? <laughs> yeah, and especially after, you know, having... You know, this this very young president who kind of came into the White House in substantial part on the base of his military service. Right. Um, that was so much a, a part of, of JFK's legacy, his, his kind of mythos. And also JFK was really seen as a son. Like people knew who Joe Kennedy was. They knew who Rose Kennedy was because he was so young. You thought about his parents in a way that, for instance, you wouldn't think about Dwight Eisenhower's parents. And and this, the Manchurian candidate in this movie is very much the son. He's seen as the heir to a potential dynasty. So it's interesting to me that so many critics from the time, as, as you pointed out earlier, called it far-fetched. Like, not because it isn't far-fetched, because sure, it's far-fetched, but like, I, I don't know what the impulse was there. Is it like to reassure readers and moviegoers that this couldn't really happen? Or is it to say that a a conspiracy thriller should be judged purely on the basis of whether or not it's far-fetched or not? You know, like, I can't remember a a movie in the last five or ten years about which critics said overall, it's far-fetched, as if that, you know, was a good way of undercutting it. Right. I mean, it's like, I don't think anybody watched Get Out and said, well, I don't really think you could take someone's brain out of their skull and put it in someone else's body like that. Exactly. Um, Yeah, Harumph is right. I mean, it it seems like, really, this is what you're going to wag your finger at this movie about? It's a thriller. Uh, I I don't quite get it. But that was definitely a part of the reaction then. And, And certainly, like, for someone like Bosley Crowther, I don't know what he specifically said, but there was this thing in the early 60s of some critics really felt that they were guardians of public taste and of decency and that they had to hold the line against 
things that were inappropriate becoming normalized in movies. I mean, Crowther once likened his role to that of a pastor, which, you know, I don't think any critic would do now. <laughs> I always like to think of myself that way. That's, that's just me. No, you know, it is, it is really interesting to look back at that. And I, I think it really speaks to this movie's position as kind of the founding or certainly a kind of a founding cornerstone of what we now know as conspiracy thrillers. I mean, there were certainly dozens, if not hundreds of movies about, you know, Nazi spies and, and people kind of hiding in the U.S. or, or in Britain, you know, people right. working undercover. But the idea that this could be done to someone without their knowledge, that they could be an agent of a foreign power and not even know it, and that that would in fact make them more effective. Because as Dr. Yen Lo, who's kind of in charge of the, the brainwashing protocol in this movie, explains an assassin who is not aware of what he's doing is, is relieved of what he refers to as like those uniquely American emotions of guilt and fear. And without them, he cannot be caught. So this is effectively a brainwashing process that turns people in, into kind of unaware sociopaths. Right. It removes all, all hint of, of conscience and that that, in fact, makes them even more effective and impossible to spot. They cannot possibly give themselves away because they don't know what they've done. And it's a way of, I think, fusing, you know, the espionage thrillers of World War II with something like Invasion of the Body Snatchers from the 1950s. So, you know, it's not a science fiction movie, but it has that kind of speculative feel. Right. It. And uh, like the idea that people are not who they appear to be is obviously a staple of horror, a staple of thrillers, a staple of conspiracy movies. But, you know, one thing when I was watching it, I suddenly thought, oh, you know, brainwashing. Does that date it? Like, is that like a sort of late 50s, early 60s notion? And then I thought, well, get out. You know, it still works. It still resonates. Right. I mean, it's interesting because I mean, it was an idea that was very much in vogue at the time that the term had only come into popular use in America within the, the previous decade. It was kind of a direct uh, transliteration of uh, the Chinese term for it, which basically translates as kind of, you know, to wash right. the brain or something like that. And so it was this thing that there was a, a kind of low level hysteria percolating through the culture that this movie obviously exploits. I think they knew even at the time, and you certainly know now that that is that it's bunk. You know, you can certainly kind of compel people to say things that aren't true through, you know, torture or other methods of coercion or, or persuasion, but it doesn't last, you know, right. and that's something that we found out um, in the Korean War and especially during the Vietnam War. Prisoners of war who were compelled to make statements on, on camera, saying things that weren't true, condemning the U.S., they could be compelled to do that, but when they came back to the U.S., you know, they didn't stay that way. They were traumatized by it, but it wasn't like they remained these kind of, you know, zombified communist puppets or, or something like that. Right. But this was a moment when, like, nightclubs would routinely hire hypnotists as entertainment. So people thought hypnosis was fun. They thought it was terrifying. As, as you said, it was just, like, peak fascination with this idea that you could control someone's brain. Yeah. And one of the things that's interesting coming back to it now is I feel like that question of, in part just because the movie is, we're so far removed from it in time, I feel like the question of, of plausibility is no longer a, a matter of concern. And it, it somehow makes it more resonant or something that it doesn't play quite as close to reality when people talk about Donald Trump being a Manchurian candidate or or when they people talked about that with regard to Barack Obama. At no point, nobody meant that as these people have been covertly hypnotized and don't know what they're doing. That part of the story is when people use the term in a kind of generic sense, that part of the movie 
always kind of falls out of the equation. Right. I mean, it's it's strange. Now the term is this kind of all-purpose, like saying is someone a Manchurian candidate is almost like saying, is he a hollow man? It's applied to anyone who as a way of disparaging someone who like isn't up to the job and is probably over controlled by outsiders or outside forces. But I mean, the, the definition of Manchurian candidate in the movie is much more specific. Right. I mean, and what's, what's kind of scary about the idea now is the idea that this whole elaborate brainwashing thing is not really necessary, that it's actually much easier to manipulate people without doing that. You need to go through this whole sort of psychobabble rigmarole. Right. I mean, I don't remember um, the phrase that uh, David Brooks just recently used, but it was something like, you know, uh, an incompetent part of whose incompetence is that he doesn't understand his incompetence. Our idea of what makes a politician dangerous is very elastic. And it interestingly ranges in the movie from a knowing demagogue McCarthyite like Iselin to a puppet like the Manchurian candidate. I mean, those are two really different strains of dangerous politician, right? One who is dangerous because he knows what he's doing and and exactly what buttons to push and what strings to pull. And the other who's dangerous because he doesn't know that he has buttons and strings that they're that are being pushed and pulled. Right. I mean, one of, one of the key lines in the movie, and it's it's fairly uh, well, I, I would say heavy handed or certainly not subtle is the line that um, Johnny Island's character, who's this McCarthy figure, that, you know, he could not sort of be doing more damage to the U.S. if he were a paid Soviet agent. Um, wah, wah. Right. Um, so the idea that this kind of virulent anti-communism is, is in itself kind of an aid to communist infiltration, I think is one of the more powerful ideas. In yeah, I, I loved hearing that line, you know, now in 2017, because it was a really good reminder that there are things to fear other than design, other than conspiracy, other than, you know, an elaborate plot. Like the lack of any plot is also something to fear. You know, the kind of ineptitude that plays into people's hands is is also a terrifying thing. Right. And that's part of the idea that runs through this movie. And, and you mentioned A Face in the Crowd earlier, is that exploiting of this populist hysteria just has a kind of generically corrosive effect regardless of what kind of to what end that's being pursued that it just corrodes not just kind of corrodes the public discourse but act just opens the door to a kind of infinite range of potential manipulations and really sets this very dangerous precedent that can be exploited by someone on pretty much any point on the political spectrum right and it's interesting in the manchurian candidate how little you see of the public like it's they're this entity and everything is at stake and whether you can manipulate them correctly or not. But they're just like this clot that's taken for granted that, yeah, if you throw the right thing at them, they will go for it. Right. And it's one of those and it's one of those aspects where, you know, as you know, having written about this so much, I mean, where production circumstances kind of really play into the effect of the movie. You know, as I mentioned, television kind of plays an important part in this film and the climax takes place at what's meant to be this giant political rally at Madison Square Garden. And, you know, Frank and Hybert just having kind of started out in film, they didn't have the budget to fill up Madison Square Garden with extras. So it's actually, it's it's shot in this very cloistered way where you get a, a few very sort of, you know, sparsely populated crowd shots. And then the rest of it feels very airless and, and contained. And there's never really, so much of the movie is about the manipulation of crowds, but you never really see the crowds. But there is something that's very, kind of strangely 
effective about yeah, that. Yeah, I, th- I think the budget limitation really helps because the minute you start see i think this is still true in movies the minute you start really lingering on reactions to show that yes this crowd was persuaded by this person you run the danger of allowing the movie audience to distance itself from the audience that's being manipulated and when that audience is kept off camera the story that's being told feels more persuasive somehow right i mean a really glaring absence in the film is kind of quote unquote the public you know, right. you never, I mean, you have kind of all these military officers and, and politicians and communist agents. There's a kind of prominent journalist or two, uh, but there, you really don't have, with very few exceptions, kind of ordinary people, the people who are going to be affected by this, the people who are being, you know, swayed in one direction or the other by these political manipulations. They're very much outside the margins of the film. And it, it kind of gives you the, the sense of how little they matter to the people who are pushing these agendas, you know, that they're, they're really just kind of a non-entity and they're entirely disposable. Right. Or at, at very best able to be taken for granted. Yeah. You know, um, let's, I mean, you mentioned that the, the Demi remake because he died recently and we've all been kind of, you know, watching and thinking about his, his films. And so just wanted to, to take a moment to talk about that. I sort of rewatched some of it in the wake of his death. I kind of, you know, sampled uh, several of his movies when I was writing an obituary for him. And you mentioned you kind of rewatched the whole thing recently. How does that play now? Because the reception was, I think, very kind of mixed to, to negative at the time. Yeah, for me, it played a lot better now than it did in 2004. I mean, starting with it adapts the story and the politics and the manipulation of the public to an audience that understood 40 years more about media manipulation and about political manipulation. The story itself is largely the same. But one thing that emerges is that the Manchurian candidate is probably a Democrat. I don't think they say it explicitly, but from the states that they think he can win, he's a hawkish Democrat. And one of the things that makes its way into the script early on is that he's specifically intended to exploit a giant wave of anti-immigrant sentiment. And that was an interesting call for 2004 that that certainly plays powerfully now. And um, there's great fun in it in terms of the acting. I mean, Liev Schreiber is a very good 2004 analog for Lawrence Harvey, but he's a better actor. Denzel Washington is by leagues a better actor than Frank Sinatra. Meryl Streep is having great fun minting a ball-busting, power-hungry politician. She has this great scene where she makes her point by crunching ice with her teeth. And it's I think it's a couple of years before The Devil Wears Prada, and she really was just flexing her muscles and enjoying playing this monster of a woman. I, I was just surprised that the movie is quite sophisticated about um i mean television is more of a part of the remake than it is a part of the original because television was more a part of our lives in 2004 than it was in in 1962 but there's a lot of pleasure to be had in everything from the performances to the way demi uses music he uses the kink song uh, better things covered by fountains of wayne at the climax of the movie which is this big convention moment it, it was just a reminder of uh, of how great he was with music. Yeah, and that and it's such a I th- feel like a deliberate callback to the classic uh, like Fleetwood Mac. Um, Completely. I, I mean, Meryl Streep is not playing Hillary Clinton, but the Clinton convention vibe is very much source material for the movie. 
Yeah, I mean, my my kind of recollection and, and experience resampling it, I think the remake kind of, it makes some really interesting adjustments. I think probably the canniest one is that the equivalent of the Janet Lee character in the remake actually is a kind of undercover agent, which is sort of like this ingenious retcon that kind of explains the super weird scene in, in the original movie. And he also um, changes the kind of evil power in the remake is no longer Manchurian China, but is now Manchurian Global. It's right. an evil corporation. Yes. The notion that money would be a border breaker, that a pan-global conspiracy would be defined by dollars rather than borders uh, was a good call for a remake. I mean, philosophically, I'm usually opposed to remakes of really good movies, but I also think that in theater, stuff is revived all the time, and I wouldn't mind seeing a third Manchurian candidate down the road when the moment's right. I mean, it turns out to be a pretty supple story that has not run out of relevance yet. Yes, I would love to see a third Manchurian candidate in a movie theater. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm not fond of the current remake, but no. I'd buy a ticket to one. All right. I think that might actually be a good place to end. So thank you, Mark, very much for joining me. Thank you, Sam. This has been the Conspiracy Thrillers Movie Club on the Manchurian Candidate. Both the original version of the film and the remake are available to rent on Amazon and iTunes. If you want to join the conversation, check out our Facebook group. To read more about The Manchurian Candidate, and more importantly, to become a Slate Plus member so you can listen to the rest of the episodes, visit slate.com slash thrillers. We've got more great movies coming up, including The Parallax View, The Conversation, and Get Out. The next episode, coming in two weeks, will be All the President's Men, and my guest will be The Washington Post's Alyssa Rosenberg. The series is produced by Chow Tu. Slate Plus's editorial director is Gabriel Roth, and I'm Sam Adams. See you next time, and we'll find out just how deep this thing really goes.